I'm Olympic and world champion diver, Laura Wilkinson, and this is the Pursuit of Gold podcast. Each week, we are unlocking the physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual tools that help athletes reach their biggest goals in sports. Today, we have on with us professional golfer, Tracy Hansen. Tracy had a successful All-American collegiate golf career at San Jose State University that included 11 individual tournament wins, an NCAA team championship, a USGA public links championship, and low amateur honors at the USGA Women's Open. She played her first year professionally in 13 different countries. She was Order of Merit winner in Asia and a Rookie of the Year on the Ladies European Tour. Tracy enjoyed 15 successful seasons on the Ladies Professional Golf Tour before retiring in 2009. Within a year of stepping away from the performance expectations of professional golf, Tracy embarked on a new journey. And this new journey has included unpacking the truth about harm and abuse that she experienced as a child. We dive deep into the emotions and realities that surround athlete abuse today. And in a culture that is uncovering more horrific athlete abuse issues like the Larry Nassar case, This is really an important topic for not only athletes to be able to recognize abuse and understand what to do if it's happening to them, but also for parents and coaches alike to be able to stop these instances as soon as possible or hopefully even before they begin. Tracy and I also talk about identity and the athlete's mental game today. And if that's something that you're wanting to dive deeper into, I've created three easy ways for you to learn more about mental training. Just go visit laurawilkinson.com slash learn. I'll link to it in the show notes to make it easier for you. But at laurawilkinson.com slash learn, you'll find an option that's right for you. There's a freebie that contains five smart strategies for confidence. There's also a free five-day challenge to conquer your fear. And there's a complete step-by-step program that includes coaching from yours truly for the athlete that's ready to take their game to the next level. Before we get into the episode, please take a quick minute to subscribe, rate, and review us. This really helps us to continue bringing on these amazing guests like Tracy Hansen. I believe that there's gold in your future, so let's dive on into this episode. Tracy Hansen, I am so excited to welcome you to the Pursuit of Gold podcast today. Thank you for being here. It's great to be on your podcast. I'm excited to see how this will impact so many people. Well, tell me a little bit about how you got started because you played golf most of your life. But how did that actually start? Were you in other sports or was this like the very first thing? I think golf was more like second or third. I started with a little softball, you know, before I was eight. And then I started dabbling in golf when I was eight or nine with my dad. And right about that same time, I started also playing basketball. So I would say... It was kind of a combination and I was a natural athlete and and I had access to a public golf course and started little tournaments when I was 10. And those trophies can really do some significant <laughs> good and harm to little kids. <laughs> right, right. So what was your experience with that? Um, well, initially, it was really exciting to start winning some of these little trophies. And um, I'm, I'm guessing that happened in golf more than the others. Well, yeah, early at that age, we... We had summer golf and I brought my first trophy home to my dad and just saw his delight. And I was like, hmm, I want more of that. And so <laughs> I started pursuing more uh, tournament golf and then basketball. I probably enjoyed more during my high school days because I grew up in the north where it snowed and golf was a pretty short season and um, ended up winning, uh, was on a, a state championship basketball team. Wow. Yeah, I just had a really good multi-sport experience growing up. 
That's awesome. So how did how did it develop? Because you played golf in college. Were you also playing other sports then as well? Or when did it kind of really start to hone in on just golf? Yeah, I think when I got to my to go from high school to college, I really had to choose between the two sports. I probably could have played both at a small college. But for me to, you know, golf or basketball wasn't going to be anything beyond college. And I was just more longevity and more opportunities came with golf. And so to pursue the professional career initially through college golf um, was the path that I chose. Gotcha. So and where did that take you? I went to San Jose State University in the Bay Area. Were you able to get a, a scholarship? I did. I got a full ride scholarship there. Yeah. And I was recruited by a handful of schools. And if for any college bound athlete out there, you know, choosing the right school is always really hard. But I just felt like I fit in the best with the coach and the team, even though I the whole metropolitan city life scared me. Are you from a small town? Yeah, I grew up outside of a town of 2,000 people. Oh my goodness, that is small. <laughs> yeah, to then went to like a 2 million plus people. <laughs> wow. So, I mean, that has to be shocking. So, I mean, because you're, you're not only just going to a big college and on a scholarship, which is, you know, kind of going to change the way you look at things, I'm sure too, but going from a small town to a big town, like how was your emotional state going in? Were you excited? Were you terrified? A little bit of both? I think I was uh, more terrified than excited and I was excited. Um <laughs> But, you know, with golf is and probably with some other uh, sports that get out there on the national level as a child, um, golf, you know, I'd already traveled to Mexico and across the country and um, some I had already done on my own. And you just experience kind of big trips and travel with individual golf tournaments that um, I think I had a little bit of perspective on the world out there. Living on campus the first year was definitely helpful because San Jose is a downtown school and being able to kind of get acclimated that way. And I, you know, I think my mindset was just like, okay, this is what I have to do. This is what I'm going to do. And I, I figured it out. So, and how did school go for you? Did you play all four years? I did. I, um, I never really, I never thought about leaving school early. I think in my generation, it was just starting to become an option to leave school early turn pro and try to play the tour. Um, but I wanted to get my college degree. I think that was important to me. And I was a good student. I was um, three-time academic All-American and only three times because they don't let freshmen on. Really? Yeah. Oh, that's well, crazy. Maybe they do now, but in my era, they didn't. Oh, man. You know, so getting good grades and uh, accomplishing that degree was really important to me. What did you, what did you graduate with? Back then, it was called human performance. Now, it would be considered the kinesiology area. Cool. So how did the transition from college then to pro work for you? How did that go? Yeah, it was interesting for me because I played the last three months of my college experience as a senior with a herniated disc. Oh. You know, and it was kind of one of those things that, one, I wanted to finish my college career and but even though I was in extreme pain, I pushed through it and I knew my team was dependent on me as well because we were one of the top two ranked teams in the nation. But by the time I went through NCAAs that senior year and it was in 1993, I was so ready to be like, just cut me open and fix my back because I was in just so much pain. 
So for me, after graduation and back surgery, I wasn't really sure how I was going to come out of it, how rehab would go. And my, my inclination was to turn pro right away, but I had to wait. But fortunately, I, I healed well and I turned pro three months later. That's fast. Yeah. And the thing with the professional golf, the way you get on tour is you have to go through this qualifying process. And it's probably one of the hardest things to do in pro golf. Just to get on the tour? Just to get on the tour. And so that first fall, I went through the process, made it to the final stage, but didn't earn my membership card. And so in 1994, I went and played overseas. And I think I played in 13 different countries that year. Wow. Yeah. So an experience that I don't necessarily want to repeat, but it was really, (laughs) really a good, not only golf career experience, but really just a life experience. Sure. I have to, okay. So I have to pause and like ask you about that. So you've obviously been to a lot of different places. Like what is the, maybe, I don't know, not just your best memories, but what was the coolest experience? Like the place you went, not maybe not even related to golf. Like, was it something that surprised you? Is it something you expected to be awesome? Like what left the biggest impression on you? I think the be- the most memorable trip was that I ended up in Australia for two weeks for two tournaments and I was able to take my mom. Oh, nice. Yeah. And so while I was out playing golf, she was out enjoying the koala bears. But, <laughs> uh, but at the end of those two weeks, we actually spent three days together in Sydney, Australia. And um, so that's probably, even though I didn't get to see a lot of the country, just the memory of being able to take my mom there with me um, holds really uh, fo- a great fondness for me. And then the other part of that experience is like learning to really be out there on your own is like a 22, 23. I don't even I think it might have been 22 years old, like driving around Europe with a rental car. <laughs> oh, on your own. <laughs> yeah. With wow. just a, another player or two, you know, just trying to navigate that. You know, this is before cell phones, before GPS. (laughs) You know, we had to use real paper maps. (laughs) (laughs) That probably weren't in English. (laughs) Exactly. So um, I I just think of those kind of things. I played good golf, too, which is uh, was really encouraging. But just that life experience of you have to grow up. You have to take care of yourself. You have to figure it out at the end of the day. And I love that. I, I definitely remember trips like that as well, like kind of between that 18 and 22 mark. But we usually had like a coach or a team leader driving us around. Like I didn't have to personally navigate. Right. <laughs> Driving all that. I can't even imagine. Oh, my gosh. It gives me a little bit. My palms are getting sweaty. As yeah. About it. So what kind of what were those first few years like as you finally got your pro card and you started to get into that world? Was it everything you had hoped it would be like? Was this your dream from kind of early on? I mean, because I know you you did multiple sports and then you kind of focused more on it in college. Like, yeah, I guess where was your mindset kind of going into that? And what was that adjustment like? Yeah, I think I held kind of two realities, you know, coming from Northern Idaho where it snowed and um, I only played not even half this, the year of golf, college golf. And that experience is really probably when I realized that I had the ability to go further Like, I think as a child, other people thought I could turn pro and and chase that dream. But I'm not sure it was my dream to start with. And that could be a whole nother podcast. (laughs) (laughs) But I did have one coach, my longtime swing coach, uh, Randy Henry. And he always told me, he's like, you know, golf is just something to something bigger in your life. 
And I didn't know the importance of that back then. Um, but I think that little, that little reminder helped me even through college golf in those early years as a professional. Um, when I transitioned into pro golf and I finally made it on the tour, I felt like a little kid in a really big pond. <laughs> and um, it took me a couple years probably to really feel comfortable and that I, 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 was, I belonged there and that I could compete there, even though I had some success in those uh, those first couple of years. I was fortunate enough. I was able to take a friend with me and she caddied for me for the first six weeks. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. And so I think that was really helpful because I, I felt comfortable with her. We, I had a, a pal, you know, a buddy to kind of hang out with and she was a fellow believer. And so we, you know, we were like-minded spiritually. We got connected with the Christian fellowship on tour and so I think those were some of the things in the early years that helped me stay sane, if you will. Yeah. Um, because professional golf is an individual sport. You're only as good as your last round or the last check that you made. And everything's based on how much money you make really at the end of the year. And it's really hard to keep that balance and in, in finding, you know, where your real identity lies. Man, that's so well said. I want to get into all of this. Like, but I want to back up a little bit because you did talk about your faith, your Christian faith. So were you a believer from early on or did something kind of happen to change your like understanding of that? Yeah, we we grew up kind of knowing God uh, was real, never understanding that Jesus was kind of the center of that faith and that relationship with God. Um, little Lutheran church upbringing, did kind of the confirmation classes, memorized the right answers. But I, I never understood the personal relationship with Jesus. And so my my honest entry into Christian faith is a little convoluted. And so one person who started talking to me more about Jesus was also um, became an abuser in my life. Oh, wow. And so there's a little bit of uh, twistedness in how I came to actually say, hey, okay, Jesus, I want you in my life. I need you. I need some help here. So that was on my way to college. And um, I was, I'm an introvert. I'm pretty shy generally, and especially at that age. So that first year of college, my whole freshman year, I didn't seek out anything, any ministry, anybody that could help me understand what like I prayed, like, what does this mean? Um, I really focused on my academics and my golf as that, that was what was normal. That was what it was expected of me. And then I met athletes in action my sophomore year of college. So between crew and athletes in action, I got some discipleship and started to understand a little bit more about what it meant to be a Christian and, and to pursue the Bible and to pursue just good quality relationships and going to church and what it meant to have a Bible study and that kind of thing. Well, can we, if you're comfortable with it, can we dive into that abusive situation? Sure. So yeah, how did that begin? And and I guess I'm kind of curious of those mixed messages that that person was giving you because I, in case somebody else is dealing with something similar, because I know a lot of times when you're in that situation, sometimes you don't even recognize it as abuse because you don't know any different or you don't tell anyone. So I, I would love to explore that if you're comfortable. Yeah. And I think what you just said, I, I felt both of those things. I didn't understand what was happening and I didn't feel safe to tell anybody. Yeah. 
So um, when I think of my uh, abuser, there was um, probably three or four years worth of grooming that happened in the sports world, in my sports context, to the point where I think it's important for me to share that I had a, I had two parents. We um, they same household, a sister, everything from the outside of our house looked like we were a great middle class two kid family. Um, but inside that home, there was no violence or anything, but there's really a lack of emotional nurturing. And so I became very kind of like independent, like I don't need anybody pretty early on and used my sports and my performance to feel like I was loved. And so in the places where my dad, I wanted to like bring that trophy home for my dad to get his adoration. I never felt like he was just really genuinely just alongside of me, helping me. And so in the context of the coach who started grooming me, I felt and received a lot of those things I was longing for from my dad. And so that's where I think for um, athletes or non-athletes that we get, uh, we don't understand what's happening because we're getting some really good things. We're getting connectedness. We're getting somebody who really is speaking life into us and who believes in us and who's taking that extra time to help us with our development and our skill sets. And and even uh, my abuser probably believed in me more than I did as far as even playing college golf and even going beyond college golf. So there's a sense of like, oh, I need this person and I can't do what I'm doing without this person. So the grooming is part of the abuse. So will you explain what grooming is a little bit for anybody out there who doesn't know? It's the little things. It's the um, building trust early, like, hey, I've got your best interest. I want to help you with your game, with your your skill. I'm going to spend some extra time shooting baskets with you or, um, or it, you know, it could be any sport, hitting tennis balls or swimming or whatever. Um, building trust with the family members, building trust with, uh, you know, spending that, hey, let's, why don't you come over for dinner or um yeah, I think things. well I think I think this is really good to explore because those all sound like great things and they they aren't by themselves bad things but like if you can go I think it's safesport.org um or you can look up safesport because they're they're really kind of um they have a lot of videos and education on on this matter so you can help understand the difference between what grooming is and just good trust between people but it's it's tends to be when an abuser is is gaining a trust so that they have some other really not good end goal in mind. And so right. parents understanding like if this if your child is maybe spending time alone with an adult, that that's not always a good thing. Maybe they seem like a great person, but maybe have another person there with them just to keep things safe and in check. And um, so there's some differences there. And I think safe sport is a great place for people to go kind of get more information on that. But yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because I, I sometimes forget about that um, resource. And I think you're right. Like if uh, I think it's probably better today than it was 30 years ago as far as understanding those differences for parents. But I lived in a small town community and where people just trusted people. And I think, you know, my par- my while well, my mom and dad were involved in many things. I mean, my dad never missed a basketball game. And yet there were there were still moments of like, Hey, are you, do you think you're spending too much time with that person? And I'd be like, no, we're, everything's good. And it wasn't good. And so that extra, that in that moment, something was recognized that isn't, doesn't feel right for the person who's asking the question. And, and my mom asked that question. 
And what I needed her to say is like, you know, I think you should stay home today and let's talk, you know, let like pursue me a little bit about that. Or even people in the, in professional colleagues who were like, Hey, you know, you probably should not spend so much time with Tracy. doesn't look great. You know? So there were, they're in that grooming process. If people have some kind of gut check about watching something in the athletic world between a coach and an athlete or a, a mentor and an athlete or, you know, that those hunches need to be followed through. Yeah. Well said. Yeah. Well said. Um, and so that's where I, I was missed. And, 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 and at the same time, I had already learned how to be that nobody was safe to talk to even my parents, because that emotional trust wasn't there, that emotional nurturing wasn't there. And so this same person started talking to me about Jesus more as a hook to keep me bound to that relationship as I was leaving, because I left, I went a thousand miles away from home for college. And so I was leaving, but that was a little bit of a hook to keep me kind of in the grasp. So it took, like, I went to college and it was about, I think three or four months later, I, I realized, like, I, somewhere in there, I found the courage to say no, no more. And it was a sexual abuse experience. And, um, and I said no more. And so how how did that go down? I mean, did they just separate or like, yeah, was it anger and like you had to deal with some fallout or how how did that play out? I think there was a uh, an experience of more of like, oh, okay, so now I've got to like salvage this. Not me, the, the abuser. Um, and so even pulled me into believing that I was culpable and part of the decision of in this relationship. And that's how I couched it for 20 years was like, this was a relationship. And that person um, also pulled me in and said, well, we have to now pray together to ask for forgiveness. And so even that, you know, just another solidification that I was at fault. And so if I'm at fault, like that even suppresses my desire to talk to anybody or tell anybody, because now I believe I was at fault. Right. You're just hanging on to that guilt. That's not yours to hang on. to. Right. Yeah. And, and shame. I would even use the word shame. Like the, you know, any, anywhere our deepest shame is really connected to our sexuality and the harm and how, you know, where, where our sexuality has been harmed. And so I had deep shame there and, um, just tried to keep going on. And this person tried to stay in my life a little bit. And I finally hit, you know, not understanding the, like this was abusive and nobody, the few people I told, told about the relationship wasn't, they were unable to say sexual abuse in my early twenties. So even that, I just kind of continued to hang on to this, like, oh my gosh, like I'm holding this secret and it's all my fault. So how did you finally recognize what it really was and, and come to terms with that? It took 20 years, sadly, over the years and then even in my Christian faith, the idea of like, well, the, the old is gone, the new is here, the past is the past, move on, forgive. You know, I think there's a lot of Christian harm there for me in my story where it just kept bearing, making it deeper and deeper, that pain, just trying to run away from it. And so my performance, my golf career was just one of those numbing agents. Like I didn't do drugs to numb out. I just tried to perform harder. And it took me getting, after I left the tour, so my place of performance, and it was about a year and a half, almost two years after, where I was doing some work with a friend, a, a gal who, with neurofeedback and brain stuff. And 
kind of shared a little bit about this experience, this relationship. And she was the first person to say that sexual abuse. At first, I'm like, I don't want to believe you. <laughs> yeah. So it took me another probably six months to probably really start to chew on that and, and to believe that that was true. Wow. I mean, did you start getting like counseling after that or? The counseling came about a year later. God was really uh, gentle with me I, and, and and I'm so thankful. He, he kind of gave me this gal. Um, she kind of started the conversation. And then about six months later, this older um, woman who's just deep well of faith came into my life. And she's like, let's do a Bible study. Let's just get back to the basics of Romans and your identity. And then from there, she introduced me to the woman who eventually I started counseling with. Wow. I, I, I mean, and it just when you say get back to the basics and your identity, and I'm, I'm thinking about what you've been through and how you couldn't deal with this. You threw yourself into performance. And like you said earlier, you're only as good as your last round. And that's probably that performance mindset. Like, what was your identity? Did you even have an identity at that point? Like, that must have been kind of earth shattering in, in a way. Cause I know athletes, I like, kind of like we've been talking about, like we have that way of basically valuing and finding our identity in our score or our performance or what place we are on the podium at the end of the tournament. And that's where we think our value lies. And that's just not true. Is Was that like a new concept to you going back through Romans? I think it was not necessarily a new concept, but a, a really good reminder. And I did the Christian professional athlete really well. <laughs> I mean, I was out there, I was sharing my faith and I was being the, you know, Christian athlete and yet so empty inside. And that was the part that people didn't know. Like even my plane, my good friends on tour, they wouldn't, they didn't know how empty inside I was, but they would respect me for my Christian faith. And, um, and I think that's where I didn't really know. Um, so the wrestling with the identity, I think that was always going on. And there were, there just like, you know, in our athletic performance, we have ups and we have downs. I think even my, as I wrestled with my identity, there were periods of time where I'm like, yeah, like my identity's in Jesus. My, you know, doesn't matter what I do on the golf course. And then there are other times like, oh my gosh, my, you know, I, everything in my life is valued on how I perform on the golf course. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I think it was both and throughout my career. I think what really, where I really struggled and where I really, feel sad about my career is that it, because of this secret and this shame that held me captive and in bondage and trying to find that real, just genuine identity in Christ that I didn't reach my fullest potential. And I say that in the sense, I don't know if my career results would have been different. Like would I've won five tournaments or 10 tournaments or no tournaments or make millions of dollars. I don't know, but I, I, what I've come to realize is that the joy from the game and the joy for the opportunities and the joy for just being alive, I think would have been so much more. So how, I guess, what advice would you have for people who, I mean, kind of like you, like where maybe you were struggling with things, but didn't realize this emptiness that you had, like how, how can people recognize that that's something they're, they're struggling with? Because it almost sounds like you, you had a problem even recognizing it. Yeah, I had a, I think I struggled recognizing it because I was living off of everybody's expectations of me. Like it was expected of me to go play golf. And even when my mom was dying, 
you know, I had three significant deaths in the, the right in the middle of my career. And one of them was my mom. And it was like, do you want me to stay home, mom? Like, no, go play golf, go play golf. And so I wrestled with that. And I think for people who have a similar experience or maybe are in the midst of um, not knowing one, I think it's important to know that you're not alone. Like you're not the only one that has experienced something horrific and that there is, or are people that want to be with you in that pain. I think sometimes we as athletes struggle or and really anybody who deals with sexual abuse, you know, we, we feel like we're not going to be believed and um, it's a huge risk to tell that story with that wonder of like, am, is this person going to believe me? That's probably one of the biggest obstacles and one of the areas I would encourage any listener who has an experience of sexual abuse that there is somebody, whether it's a professional counselor or a friend that will believe you and to take the risk to, to speak it out loud. That's well said. It reminds me, I mean, with all the like Larry Nassar stuff that was going on in the gymnastics world, um, you know, I've seen several documentaries on that. And that was what a lot of the girls said was just that either they didn't think anybody would believe them because everybody loved that guy because he was so charismatic and so well loved by everybody. They were afraid that no one would believe them or um, that they just didn't even recognize it as abuse. They thought that was just what was supposed to happen. So I think kind of like what you're saying, anytime something doesn't feel right, talk to somebody about it. Like, even if you feel awkward, even if you're not sure, like go to some, there's gotta be somebody you trust in your life. And if not go to a counselor, like counseling is not, I know sometimes it has this like stigma of being, oh, you know, you you can't do it yourself or something like that. But like counseling, psychology, like it is great. It is so nice to have people to talk to that can understand what you're going through and can help you walk through it. Like they're not there to tell you you're crazy. They're there to help you walk through whatever situation you're in. And I, yeah, I just encourage people to to not hold those things in, um, like you were saying, but to find somebody you can trust. Yeah, I think counseling was the hardest and best thing that I've ever done in my life. Yeah, well said. So is that kind of what motivated you to become a counselor? Yeah, I, you know, when I left the golf tour in 2009, I hated golf. I didn't want to play golf. I didn't want to talk about golf. I didn't want to work in the golf world. I just wanted it to be behind me and kind of disappear And so this is where God has a sense of humor with our stories. (laughs) So I, you know, I did two personal individual counseling. In the midst of that, I did some group experiences that I would highly recommend to people as well. And in that process, about two, about three years after the two and a half into counseling, I had to kind of look at golf and say, okay, you've brought a lot of harm into my life. But then I also had to start blessing the good that it brought to my life. And when I got to a point where I could hold both of that, that there's good and bad for me in sport, then I, I realized that there were some giftings in, in golf still that God gave me and that, um, that he's asking me to still walk through that. And so to utilize the gifts that he's given me in maybe different ways, maybe to develop relationships or to use me as a golfer to open the door, but that it would be, um, a prideful thing maybe, or uh, kind of turning my back on God if I didn't really walk in the gifts that he gave me. And and part of that is golf. And so with that, I wanted to start helping young athletes get the help that I needed in my early twenties, instead of having to wait 20 years. So is that mostly who you are? Like, are you on the pro circuit doing that? Or is it more college age 
people or like, yeah, what kind of group are you diving into? My heart is for any elite athlete. So college level and beyond. So whether it's amateur or professional, um, you know, high school age, um, you just have to be really careful because of liability and stuff like that. So really any athlete, college level, elite level, because I'm a golfer, I have access to the golf world much easier. And so I have spent a couple seasons with what's called the Symmetra Tour, which is the developmental tour into the LPGA. Oh, cool. And just working with, just being available, just being a free resource to those golfers to talk about life, whether it's um, about abuse or trauma in general is a big category. And sometimes we pigeonhole the word trauma into just a sexual abuse scenario. But, you know, as athletes, as you know, Laura, maybe there's an injury that ends somebody's career. That's a trauma. And especially when it's not their choice to end their career. Or maybe like for me, I lost my mom in the middle of my career. I needed help to walk through that. And I didn't get really good help. That's a trauma. And so I really just offer myself as a mentor slash counselor for really life conversations and spiritual conversations go kind of around that and in and through those conversations as well. Does it take somebody a while to like open up to you or do you have to like dig it out of them? (laughs) Like how does that usually go down? Yeah, it's interesting. Some uh, golfers that I've talked to, I've actually had both experiences. I've had one experience where the, the young woman just was like, I'm ready to tell you, like, I'm suffering from depression. And to the other side of where it's like, hey, you know, I've got a golf question. You know, I get a lot of I get really anxious on the golf course. And how can I help that? How can I fix that? They think I'm going to talk about golf and how to like, like, (laughs) okay, well, you know, walk to the ball this way or set up this way or do this technique where I might say, well, when do you start feeling anxious? Right. And what what does that feel like in your body? And and what do you what happens before you even get to the golf course? You know, and so then that's kind of a subtle entry point into some deeper questions. And then all of a sudden we're not talking about golf at all. We're just talking about their life. Right. Oh, that's so good. I I have a, an online course um, called Confident Competitor where I it's it's about the mental game and it's doing a lot of these things. And so you know I get a lot of questions from athletes all the time, especially on social media stuff. Like, how do I get over these mental blocks? Because that's just huge in my sport and in gymnastics where you get up there and you're just like stuck, like you can't go. You know, and it's mm-hmm. it's so funny because I'm like, this is not a problem. That's because of the dive. Like this is <laughs> so much deeper and maybe not even a pool deck involved. <laughs> you know, but, right? Yeah. It's, it's so funny how, how anything in sports, it really does come down to like life issues and what else is going on inside and, and that because it just comes out in sports sometimes. And I think it's a probably a great, great way to recognize if you have some internal struggles as if you are struggling in your sport. You know, it's it's just really it's yeah, it's interesting. I think as athletes, we try so hard, kind of like what you were doing to, to just put on that tough you know, exterior and and just throw ourselves into our performance and just block it out. Right. That's the best quote. Just block it out. You know, and it's like, well, when you do that, you're just making it bigger and worse. And it just kind of impacts you even more in the back end. Yeah, I totally agree. You know, and I think that's where people put our culture puts athletes on these pedestals like we're superhuman, like we don't have emotions and we don't have life experiences that are really bothering us. And I'll speak from as a golfer. At a professional event, we have every fairway is lined with ropes where the spectators have to stay outside the ropes and the, the players are inside the ropes. 
And a lot of people will say, well, this, once you get inside the ropes, just, just drop everything and don't think anything about, except for about your golf game. As if that rope has this magical Magic. power. <laughs> and, you know, we're, we're human beings. We're body, soul, and spirit. And regardless of what sport you're playing, we bring all of who we are to whether you're on the course or on the court, in the pool, on the field, whatever it is. And I think, unfortunately, we don't give athletes the freedom in our culture to be that human person. Yeah, I think uh, we could talk about this like all day long. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I, I do love that. And I, I kind of do want to dig into it a little bit more because I think it, it's funny because you watch, you know, the movies, the sports movies, and it's like, like for the love of the game, when he'd be like Q focus or whatever, and he'd like hone in on this zone. It's like, I mean, ideally you can find your flow state, but it's not just like snapping a finger and things come together. Like there's all this stuff that has to happen beforehand for it to come together. But, but sometimes, you know, there's those points where like, what you were saying is we we are mind, body, soul, and spirit. We have to bring all of that into your performances. I mean, at least what I've found is that when I perform my best, like it's all there. You know what I mean? It's mm. not like I'm blocking out the world. It's it's that I'm letting it in. And yeah. sometimes it's diving from a place of pain or it's, it's, you know, just feeling all of the feels. And that's that's sometimes overwhelming and scary. But um, sometimes you just got to put it all out there, too. And and that's that's really hard when if you're dealing with something that's really, really negative in your life or a trauma or something like that. And I think, yeah, it just, it just plays off in so many ways. And then if you get frustrated because you're not performing the way you want to, that just makes this other trauma like magnified even more. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think you would say maybe in most contexts, diving is an individual sport, even though you're part of this team, mm -hmm. because it's really you on that board looking at the water and as a golfer, it's an individual sport, even though we have our caddy, it's like, I'm the one swinging the golf club. You know, when it, when it, there's so much pressure on that soul performance that if there's these hard, these hard things happening in life, that's pressures coming in. And then there's this pressure of like, oh, it's, it's all on me to perform. It's at some point we can't, we can't hold the capacity for all that. Yeah. And I think what one thing I would want to say is that there's so much power in just being able to name what's true. And so even for an athlete to say, you know, I'm really hurting. And uh, say for me, like my mom died, like if I was able, I wonder if I was able to be more honest about what I was feeling, if I would, I could have still played on tour in the midst of the, that sadness and grief, but with more freedom rather than like this, like, oh, I just have to go out and play and, and perform in this rigidity and, you know, don't let those tears come out. I wonder what, how much more freedom athletes could play in the midst of all of that they're experiencing, if they could just name it. Oh, there's so much truth to that. Well, what I guess, how is COVID, because we were talking a little bit before we, we started recording that, that COVID obviously has thrown a loop in everybody's plans, but, um, what specifically for you, because you were on tour with these athletes and now you're not really, and you said they're kind of trying to do a bubble. Like, what is that looking like these days? Yeah. So for me, my ministry opportunities pretty much came to a halt in April, end of March, when everything kind of shut down. And for me personally, I'm still available to athletes by phone, by text, by Zoom, FaceTime. All I can do is offer that. And so sometimes I get a call or a text and, Hey, Tracy, can we talk? Um, I've had a few conversations over the phone with a few athletes, but I can't go on site right now. Um, because they're trying to keep it to players, caddies, and a couple family members. 
so I feel a, a big loss of being able to be with these these young women that I've started to develop relationships with. And I feel like I'm kind of leaving them out there, you know, with no help. In the midst of that, for me personally, there's been kind of this need for some rest and a mini sabbatical. So I've tried to embrace that as part of the process this year. Um, and then God's opening some more doors. And um, one of those doors, which maybe some of your listeners, your athletes that are listening might be f- interested in, is there's a, an entity called the Faith and Sport Institute that is developing more and more tools for athletes for really caring for the whole athlete. Um, so emotionally, physically, spiritually. And um, it's a Christian-based kind of helping sports chaplains really develop some tools from a theological foundation to help athletes. But we're hoping to maybe provide some opportunities in the future where athletes can come together in retreat scenarios, like intensive kind of retreats, and just get some personal care around um, whatever they're, they're, they're needing help with, whether it's from the one extreme of abuse to life decisions. That sounds awesome. Yeah. So I'm really excited about that and what God might be doing as I collaborate with them. And they're down on Baylor University's campus. So they have, uh, you know, some good foundation behind them. Yeah. And then I'm just doing some writing. I write golf devotionals for a, a ministry. And then I'm trying to write my book that seems to be, gets, stuck in the mud most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> that's a whole different kind of challenge, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Do you, Well, I have to ask you now, because I you still like have, you know, fundraising tournaments and things like that. So do you still play golf every once in a while? I do. I It's hard, really hard to say this. I'm, I'll tell you my age. I'm turning 49 in a couple of weeks and I'm considered a senior golfer. Oh, are you serious? Yeah. So in our golf world, professional world, 45 and over, you can be a senior golfer. Um, wow, so 45 all of our, and older? Wow. Yeah, I know. Yeah. So all of our opportunities were canceled because of COVID this year. With that, I just lost my motivation to really play or practice. Um, I enjoy playing with people because it's about the relationships. It's not about the fact of that I'm out playing golf. So I haven't played a whole lot this year other than some uh, some fundraisers and some a couple things that were more relationally minded. So I do still play. I still play fairly decent. <laughs> is it more enjoyable now, though? Yeah, it is, because I, it's not about the outcomes. It's just about who I'm with and, you know, experiencing the whole day with those people. I love that. I love that. Well, where, tell me a little bit about, because you have a nonprofit too. Tell me about your nonprofit. So it's called the Tracy Hansen Initiative. And it's really just the, the housing where I can do the ministry, the, min- the mentoring and the counseling work that I desire to offer free of charge for athletes. Um, except for the retreat ideas, maybe um, down the future where, you know, you have to give a little bit in order to kind of be invested into it. But my whole, my whole desire and purpose is to provide opportunities for safe opportunities for athletes to talk about their stories of trauma. And so I, through the nonprofit, I can raise funds to help support me being available to those golfers for free where they don't have the funds to maybe find that help in other places or maybe connect with a college 
athletic department and do some mentoring and counseling to their athletes free of charge. You know, it's, so it's really that it's that avenue of where people can come alongside and say, yeah, yeah, I, I believe in this type of work and ministry to help other athletes and want to support that. That's awesome. We'll definitely make sure to link to all of this in the show notes. Um, but yeah, I guess if there's any advice you could leave with the people listening today um, on maybe how to walk out their athletic careers um, fully and not not empty, like what 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 parting words would you give to them? I think it's really important to have one or two people in your world that you fully trust and can be fully authentic with that it's not about your performance and that it's not about what they can get from you, but that they just really love you and want the best for you and want to be somebody that you can talk with. I think that's really important. If the stress and anxiety around the sport is outweighing the joy and the playfulness of it, then there's something out of balance and that they need to get some help. That's very well said. Tracy, thank you so much for for taking the time to come on and um, and sharing what's not a comfortable story, you know, but, but an important one because a lot of people deal with this and, and need that wisdom from somebody who's been there before them. So we really appreciate your vulnerability and your openness and, and honesty. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for having me on. Thank you so much for tuning in today. And please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review our show. This allows us to keep bringing on amazing guests and it also helps other athletes to find this show. Make sure to check out the show notes to follow us on social media and learn more about our awesome guest. To hear all of our amazing episodes, head on over to thepursuitofgold.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. The Pursuit of Gold is proud to be a Podigy production. That's all for now. Make sure to tune back in next week.